All right. Well, hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti, and welcome to another episode and a new year for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back in studio with an extremely special guest today, uh, Professor Jeffrey Schnapp, who we'll be spending quite a bit of time with. So, so buckle in. This may be one of the most fascinating discussions that I've ever had, and I think uh, uh, I promise you that if you if you stay with us, you're going to hear a tremendous amount about the history of transportation and how we manage the transportation crisis that we're facing today. So, Jeffrey, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So good to have you. And so, uh, Jeffrey is someone who has spent uh, most of his career in academia, um, both at the distinguished institutions of Stanford, where he spent about 25 years, and more recently at Harvard, where in addition to being an endowed professor, he runs both the Meta Lab and the Berkman Klein Center on Internet and Society. Uh, he actually founded the Meta Lab, and we're going to dig in deeply. But an important part of our discussion today is going to be about Jeffrey's role in co-founding, leading, and now serving as chief visionary officer for Piaggio Fast Forward, which is a remarkably unique laboratory focused on the future of intelligent personal mobility, which was set up here in Boston um, on behalf of an Italian company that's been around since the American Civil War. And what's going to be remarkable about this company is they've been able to see ahead of the curve and move toward every new shift in mobility in a way that no other company that I'm familiar with has done. So, Jeffrey, with that, if you would be so kind, right, we've, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Piaggio Fast Forward, but in my last episode, I interviewed Carolyn Wynette, and this is a woman who studied to be a violinist and practices as a professional violinist for five years before starting her very circuitous path to become the executive director of the Berkeley Sky Deck. Your path is even more remarkable. So if you would be so kind as to maybe just share a little bit about your history, both as someone who was a professor and dean and faculty chair at Stanford, while at the same time racing motorcycles, which is not typical. No, I, I my uh, my fellow teammates and uh, race competitors sometimes used to um, tease me by saying you're the world's fastest academic, which <laughs> was not necessarily a compliment. Yeah. Usually I got my revenge, however. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I always had a, a really strong interest in sports, but motorsports in particular. I grew up, I was born in New York, but uh, New York City, but I... Um, I grew up in Mexico City, uh, where my father ran the advertising division for Eastman Kodak, which uh, uh, allowed us to go to the Formula One races and to other races on a regular basis. And I really developed an appetite for um, uh, motorsports at that time. Um, not one that I had particularly fully acted on, but um, it remained an, an abiding interest um, when we returned to the United States in 1968, uh, we moved actually to the Boston area, which is where I went to high school. And um, I, I always had really two different areas of, of real passion. One of them was for cultural history and particularly um, the, the, the kind of linguistic and literary traditions of the Mediterranean. I had studied French when I was growing up. I was bilingual English-Spanish. Um, the, the other set of interests were really creative and technological. Um, I was always attracted to the arts, uh, interested in 
uh, arts-based and creative practice, but had a fascination for mechanical things and uh, technical things. Um, I never really managed to put all those those strands together in the course of my undergraduate life, uh, where I really privileged the the humanities and the cultural history piece uh, to the point where I actually majored in French and Italian um, Spanish literature, romance literatures. Uh, at the undergraduate level, was lucky enough to win a Fulbright to France. I taught in France for three years. And during those three years, I was uh, largely a practicing visual artist. Uh, I really didn't have any intention of going on in the academic world. My, my key commitments were really in the domain of, uh, of the visual arts. Um, but I started getting a little bored. Uh, I, I felt the need for the stimulus of the, the kind of stimulus that being back in the academic world gives you. And so I ended up deciding to pursue a PhD in the field of comparative literature, which is a field that's very accommodating to people who are a little bit restless like myself in the academic world. And so uh, having never been west of the Mississippi, I uh, decided to go to Stanford. Uh, and that's where I did my PhD. And, um, and after five years of, uh, of work at Stanford, which were really wonderful years and certainly whetted my appetite for re-engaging with the whole technology world as it was just bubbling up and emerging and beginning to really transform the cultural climate of the Bay Area, um, um, I got my first professorship, which was at Dartmouth. <clears throat> and um, Dartmouth is a really unique institution because it's president uh, right around the time that I arrived there, which was, if I'm remembering my dates correctly, 1983, um, John Kemeny had been the president, and he had made Dartmouth the first truly connected campus. Uh, there was a kind of interesting, somewhat primitive email system that linked together all the dorms. There was a computing center that was doing all kinds of really fantastic stuff, really cutting edge stuff at that time. And I immediately got re-engaged with that world, even as I began my career as a literary humanist, to the point where uh, a year later, I found myself as the on-site uh, director of the first National Endowment for the Humanities Digital Project, which was the so-called Dartmouth-Dante Project. Um, so the, all these threads, just to make a long story short, really started coming together one at a time, I suppose, in the course of my career. First at Dartmouth, then I went to Stanford um, in 1985 as an associate professor uh, in the French and Italian department. Um, and uh, a decade later, I started uh, tinkering with the construction of lab-type organizations that would bridge the humanities and the technology field. And I really found that a very stimulating area. And that really would go on to reshape my later career, particularly my move to Harvard in 2009, where I founded uh, the Meta Lab, which is part of the Berkman Klein Center. So I've always worked in a kind of experimental space between the cultural fields and the technology realm. And what interests me in particular in that world is, are the opportunities for reimagining what knowledge looks like in the 21st century, for engaging in forms of experimentation that you might think of as more typical of, let's say, the natural sciences than of the humanities. And um, what interests me in particular within that larger fold is the opportunity to build new audiences for um, advanced learning in the arts and humanities uh, that uh, leverages the power of technologies to do some really powerful things. Wow. So just let me go back and just maybe uh, tease out a few things that you said. So one is here you are, you're at Dartmouth. And Dartmouth is not the first institution I would think of 
as being so ahead of the digital curve, right? This incredibly idyllic Ivy League campus up, you know, in the in the deeply nestled in the woods of New Hampshire. Uh, gorgeous campus. But as you said, in 83, a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley corporations were creating email just for their employees for internal purposes. So the fact that the dean of Dartmouth was able to do this in 83 and that you happen to be on campus is the first in a number of extraordinarily serendipitous events that have shaped your life and your career. Um, the second thing, of course, is you wind up in Silicon Valley around the same I- time I do in 1985, which is the era of the PC revolution and when the valley really starts to hit its stride and it, there's just infinite possibilities. And so I, I imagine it's impossible not to be affected by you know, the digital, the very early days of the digital revolution while you're sitting on campus and, you know, just imbibing what's happening all around you from this very central location in, in uh, Palo Alto on the Stanford campus. Indeed. I, I, when I was a graduate student at Stanford and I was um, working my, my dissertation, uh, which was on a medieval topic of all things, I was the first humanities student to ever not only compose, but to deliver his dissertation entirely in digital form. I, wow. I used to cart a, uh, a K-Pro, uh, what was then considered a portable uh, computer around, uh, wherever I went. Uh, Which weighed about as much as a piano, right? Indeed, yeah. <laughs> indeed. It had to travel with a passport. I remember that. <laughs> um, I but, love it. But, uh, but certainly this was the really the emer- moment of emergence of personal computing. And yeah. I was fascinated by that world, had gotten, uh, become uh, an active tinkerer with the operating systems of that time. Uh, like most people who uh, use those early machines, you knew a certain amount about disk recovery and yeah. uh, and really started getting interested in the crisscrossing between these different domains of, of interest. And then you have this other passion, which is, you know, as you said, cultivated by traveling with your family and, and Formula One and, and motorsports. But there comes a point when you're actually personally racing motorbikes and, and the Aprilla brand, uh, which is now owned by Piaggio. We're going to, we're going to talk at length about Piaggio going forward, but just another connection point here to what will ultimately lead to you becoming the founding CEO of Piaggio Fast Forward's, you know, personal intelligent mobility lab here in Boston. So, um, what were your experiences as a motorcycle racer? Cause that's a pretty extreme sport. Yeah, I had um, done some go-karting, go-kart racing um, early, earlier in my life. Uh, always loved, uh, especially small cylinder, um, two-stroke motorcycles. When I lived in California, I usually had one or two, <laughs> sometimes more. Um, and um, after I got tenure at Stanford and was associate professor, I had a neighbor down the street in San Francisco who was an active racer and who was uh, dreaming of returning to the racetrack after um, a long pause in his own life that was accompanied by having children and other such uh, important distractions. And um, we had talked about uh, doing it together as a kind of neighborhood enterprise. And, uh, and so we would go to track days and practice. We had the motorcycles. We were kind of ready to go. We just decided at one point, let's do it. We'll race for one season. It'll be fun. Um, you know, not just for fun, not nothing serious. And uh, 15 years later, <laughs> uh, I finally did retire. But um, in, the, in the intervening years, 
really got deeply engaged by it, uh, so much so that uh, really as of typically Wednesday or Thursday of every week, I was in my garage with my mechanic friends prepping bikes for the race weekends or for practice weekends pretty much continuously during the race season and uh, raced in the American Federation of Motorcyclists uh, Championship, which is it's the oldest a road racing championship uh, for motorcycles in the United States, but it's concentrated on the West Coast. So the tracks are all located between Oregon and uh, Southern California, a couple a little bit further inland. And um, I competed in a number of different classes. I competed in the 125 class, the 250 class. Those are two strokes. I competed in what are called uh, Formula Singles bikes, which are Formula Full Race framed bikes that are custom built, uh, even won a, a championship uh, in, I think if I'm remembering correctly, 2006, uh, pretty advanced age at the time. Um, but I also raced on an endurance team for a number of years, which was really my favorite kind of racing. Th those were typically four hours or six hour races, sometimes longer, um, that involved pit stops, changing pilots, changing tires. Um, so I've tried a whole range of different kinds of racing and, um, it was really, I have to say a really great experience, broken bones aside and, uh, trips in the ambulance aside, which, you know, <laughs> but you, if you were going to compete in a serious way and, uh, particularly, uh, you know, motorcycle competition, you just, that's just comes with, uh, with the terrain. Okay. So last question before we take a short break. So you've been working on, to some extent, a book quickening the anthropology of speed over some period of time, 10, 15 years or so. When did you begin to become fascinated with the, the notion of speed and transportation? When did this passion really start to overtake you? So the principal area of cultural history that I work on as a scholar is um, I was trained as a medievalist, but I was always really interested in the avant-garde's at the early 20th century. And the defining avant-garde, the one that really sets the model for all of the cultural political movements that come in its wake in the early 20th century is futurism. Futurism was a movement that was born in 1909, led by the Italian, Franco-Italian poet, uh, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, for whom speed was really the defining attribute of the industrial era and that all cultural forms, all aspects of modern life, all aspects of economic life, all would be reshaped around this central value of acceleration and speed. So it's a sort of an obvious theme. It's, it's, a, it's the defining myth, if you like, of the modern era for these kinds of cultural movements. But of course, Having been trained as a medievalist at the same time, having a much broader intellectual horizon, what what really struck me as I worked and I did editions of various texts from that period is actually that that fascination with things that move quickly, with speed itself, um, is much deeper than the the myth would suggest at first glance. And humans' fascination with speed is reflected in all kinds of ideas about the supernatural, about the divine, about the figures we admire. And you can go into the annals of history backwards and backwards and backwards, and what you find constantly is an expression, a particular expression of this interest that we have in things that move outside of the ordinary pace that we associate with our own existences. So I started getting interested in this idea of doing something 
of tra- tracing a kind of panoramic vision of the human fascination with speed in the pre-motorized era, in the motorized era, and, and now in the information era, because I see that as a story of continuity rather than of rupture. Uh, today, we ha- we don't, we're not moving physically any faster than people were c- circa 1980. But every other aspect of our life has been accelerated by the ubiquity of connective, connected devices. Fascinating. So I can't help but ask. So here you are, you, you know, you're a global citizen, but you went to high school in Boston. You lived in Mexico City. And then you spent 25 years in the crucible that is known as Silicon Valley, right? Sort of the, the renaissance of our era. There have been a lot of time motion studies that have been conducted of humans walking across open space. And myself being someone who was born in Brooklyn, grew up in New York, has lived in Boston for 20 years, but has done a lot of travel and spent a lot of time in the Valley, right? The, the speed at which people walk in open space without, you know, without having to uh, be forced to move quickly says so much about a local culture. And from what I remember, people in Boston actually walk at a faster clip than people in New York, which was surprising to me. So is there anything that, you know, that you can share about sort of the, you know, as we think about culture, this speed, the sense of purpose, where if you're in the Midwest, people are going to be a little bit more nonchalant about how they move themselves down the street versus someone in, certainly in Boston or New York City. What does that say about us? I think walking is is just one of the most profound expressions of who we are, both as as creatures, as, you know, our bipedal Identity is so fundamental to every cognitive aspect of being a human being. But I think as your question is already hinting, it's a profound expression of the kind of culture we belong to, of our sense of purpose as we move, of the degree to which walking is a social or interactive activity, for example. And I will confess that I'm an extremely fast walker. I um, I can't help myself. And when I'm forced to walk with Italian friends, which I frequently do because <laughs> I also have a home in Milan, Italy, and I spend a, a lot of time in other parts of the world is in the course of my, uh, my work life, um, I find it extraordinarily difficult to adapt my gait to um, the practices of, of other places. And so I, I guess since my arrival in Boston, I felt very at home from the standpoint of walking. I share that experience completely. And it is quite a profound experience, right? You you literally feel like you are throttling your own being. And, <laughs> and you're very aware of almost wanting to drag people along at a faster speed with you. Well, listen, this has been a great um, introduction to what I, I know is going to be an extraordinary look now into the future of transportation, the future of personal mobility. So why don't we just take a break here and we'll be back in just a minute. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. All right. All right. So we are back with Jeffrey Schnapp, Professor Jeffrey Schnapp, who I think we've already established quite uh, quite quickly is is without doubt uh, a polymath, a man who has a remarkable number of interests that are going to lead to a fascinating uh, place as we get through our discussion. So, Jeffrey, you came back now from you know you're you're here in uh, the valley. You, you're spending 25 years in the valley. You progress through 
your PhD, you return, you, you get tenure, you become a department chair, you become an assistant dean. Life is good. The weather is good. Um, you know, things are, things are rocking in the valley. It, but as you look back, what was it about your non-academic experience, right? Being there during this period of just extraordinary innovation from the PC revolution led by Gates and Jobs through the networking revolution with 3Com through, you know, literally the, the Mosaic browser and Netscape and the World Wide Web and Amazon and, and Netflix, just a remarkably robust time and you're right in the center, what more than anything shaped you and your worldview around digital and speed at that, you know, from that period? Well, it's, um, it's a challenge to pick out a single episode because for me, it was such a sustained series of stimuli. Um, but but I, I, if I had to sum it up, um, I would say um, my direct contacts with the Xerox Park environment with people who had been instrumental in the work of Park during its really maximum period of creativity. Um, and they were really part of a, there was a kind of diaspora uh, at, at the time that I first arrived at Stanford, but they were there and they, their ideas were there and the devices were there and many of the experiments were alive and well. And I certainly experienced them in the creative community in San Francisco. I always commuted between San Francisco and Palo Alto. So I, I kind of got two different facets of the life of the Valley. One, the, the sort of experimentation that was happening on the cultural and creative front up in the city, mostly Oakland, Berkeley. Um, and then the other, of course, the, the kind of startup culture and what was bubbling up down in the Valley itself. So, um, I, I, I think it was really that, that volatile mix of components that um, really excited my imagination. I remember in particular seeing some of the earliest high-resolution displays and realizing the potential that they would have for forms of cultural expression as well as, you know, the visualization of complex phenomena, data sets, and, so, and the like. Um, I saw some early experiences, experiments with interactivity, uh, with input devices, even gestural uh, prompts uh, for as inputs, um, all of that stuff just really seemed like it could light the f world on fire. And it, it, as for me, at least, that world always included cultural institutions. Like, what would a museum be, experience be like in the 21st century? How could we leverage the power of expert knowledge and make it available to somebody without picking up a specialized journal that they didn't have access to, that, but that would excite them using a different kind of sensory register. So it was all the mix of stuff that, um, that really played a key role in, in rethinking what it means for me, at least, to be a, a cultural historian in the 20th century, not to mention somebody involved at, more actively or entrepreneurially in, um, in an innovation. That's great. So now here you are, your, your, um, your wife is being recruited potentially to, you know, come back East. And um, there comes a point where you decide now to move back to Boston and take on a faculty role at Harvard um, and eventually take on, uh, you know, the, uh, the leadership of a lab there. So can you talk a little bit about that transition for you? Yeah. Um, you know, after having been at Stanford for so long, um, it was hard for me to really imagine going anywhere else. Uh, but, but I did feel that um, it, the, uh, the, the kind of, you know, Stanford is a campus environment. It's very different from Harvard. It's not an urban school and to the same degree. 
Um, it's also a university that has always privileged the engineering component of the of the school, and it it really is the the kind of heart of Stanford in a way that engineering has never been the heart of Harvard. So. Um, one of the attractive points for me was just to to enter another great, really fantastic research environment, but one where the balance between the humanities and the the engineering and technology fields was a different one, um, and where that uh, particular importance that the uh, arts and humanities fields have played in the history of a great university like Harvard expresses itself in the form of 12, at least 12 museums, 72 libraries, just a tremendous, incredible, rich, rich uh, collection of assets. Um, the opportunity of being somebody who could catalyze those assets, uh, experiment with them, engage with them, um, even through the classroom, in the classroom, through the construction of the, the lab that I built, which is called the Meta Lab and is part of the Berkman Klein Center, um, was really an exciting prospect for me. And I was ready for a change in my life. And uh, the lab that I built at Stanford, which was a little bit like the kind of the predecessor of the Meta Lab, I think had had a good 10-year run and was um, had fulfilled its mission. And, and so the, the I, I really welcomed the challenge and uh, I haven't looked back since. It's been a really fantastic move for me, a really exciting one. And um, I would make exactly the same decision today. Uh, may, I might even make it a couple years earlier. Fascinating. So this is where things start to get very interesting. And this is where, you know, from my perspective, looking in, it looked like everything you've done up until this point in your life, professionally, personally, prepared you for the new opportunity that was about to present itself to you. So here you are, you are the the founder and the, the faculty director of the Meta Lab. Um, and in many ways, it's an open institution and you're having a networking event and a couple of Italian gentlemen show up in your lab um, and you have an opportunity to have a discussion with them that two years later leads to a phone call. Can you share a little bit about that story? Sure. So um, Meta Lab... Uh, MetaLab is a, an experimental platform that's part of the Berkman Klein Center, largely driven by creative technologists, designers, uh, people with humanities backgrounds like my own, but with a strong appetite for experimentation. And um, typically, we we manage a portfolio of projects. Sometimes, many of the projects involve museums, archives. They involve experiments. We build software platforms. We do a wide array, array of things. And... Um, Typically, during the course of an academic year, we'll hold a couple of what we call open lab events, where we open the doors, we invite our friends from the Media Lab at MIT, from other institutions to exhibit work in progress. We have a big party. It's like a cross between a party and a hackathon, and people show up. Uh, it's one of the great things about the Boston community. We just have this incredible kind of cross-fertilization between institutions. And um, in the course of one of those open labs, a friend of mine who's a Swiss entrepreneur who runs a small biotech firm that I had helped out and done some consulting for, um, he brought a bunch of executives from one of the Harvard Business School um, uh, seminar series workshops. And uh, at the time, they weren't working, not, none of them were working for the Piaggio Group, but uh, we had a nice conversation afterwards and spoke in Italian together. I, I have a home in Milan. I work back and forth between Italy and the United States. And so they were kind of fascinated by this mix of interests. And somehow the conversation turned to motorcycle racing as well. So they knew that I was a former motorcycle racer. And that's pretty much where it ended, exchange of some cards, uh, business cards. And uh, 
a warm handshake and uh, off they went. Um, a couple years passed and I received a phone call from one of them who had left the, the multinational he was working at. He was now head of marketing at the Piaggio Group and he asked me when I would be in Milan next that the CEO of the Piaggio Group was interested in meeting me and maybe I could come by for coffee next time. Um, so... Um, every two months or so I'm in Milan. Uh, I happened to be going there, I think two or three weeks after the phone call. And I promptly showed up at the doors of the Piaggio uh, headquarters, um, in the center of Milan, walked in expecting to have coffee with the CEO and the head of marketing. And instead it turned out to be a job interview. That's great. So let's set the table now for most of our listeners. Now, here I am. I'm a very proud Italian, hundred percent Italian blood fairly well-read, have spent a lot of time in Italy, really did not know the Piaggio Group. I, of course, knew the Vespa scooter. So for our listeners, Piaggio Group founded around the time of the American Civil War, around 1864, in Genoa, Italy, a great shipbuilding city, and an organization that was dynastic, so it was run by a family. But what makes the company so remarkable is unlike so many other organizations, it continued to evolve and move from one S-curve or one generation of transportation to another. Here in Boston, the famous Teddy Levitt often would be quoted as if only the railroad companies knew that they were really not in the train business, but in the transportation business, perhaps they would have been the kings of the auto industry, but they missed that. But for whatever reason, this family-run company was able to move from shipbuilding to making airframes and I'm going to have Jeffrey, you know, elaborate a little bit more to post-World War II, creating the iconic Vespa scooter as much out of necessity as out of anything else. Uh, an extension to that product called the Ape, which, uh, which again, we'll give Jeffrey the opportunity to describe, but a, uh, a remarkable brand extension uh, of great functionality on a scooter platform. Um, and then over some period of time, realizing that there's this revolution happening in transportation that they don't want to miss, which is where, again, we circle back full to uh, Jeffrey getting this job interview uh, in Milano. So Jeffrey, maybe a little bit about uh, Piaggio, this remarkable Italian dynastic company that was so uniquely culturally functional that they could evolve from one dramatic change in you know, form of transportation to the next over literally 150 years. Yeah, it's an, it, it's an extraordinary story. And um, as I'm sure I don't need, need to remind the listeners, there aren't that many companies that have been around for, for anywhere close to that duration. Um, yeah, the company began in Genoa, this great shipbuilding capital, uh, and they didn't build ships, they outfitted ships. So there were shipbuilders who then brought in suppliers, essentially, to go in and, and outfit a ship for whatever particular purpose it was designed, whether it was a passenger ship or a cargo ship. And the, the Piaggio family, a part of the Piaggio family, uh, was involved not just in the actual outfitting, but also in forestry and uh, creating tree farms so that there would be a steady supply of the necessary timber for purposes of, of outfitting. And it was in that context that as the we reached the end of the 19th century and uh, another transportation revolution is, is transforming the landscape, namely the dissemination of trains and train-based uh, travel forms um, are 
are, is, is increasingly reshaping cities, that the Piaggio Group begins to manufacture railway cars and trams and other kinds of vehicles, which at the time, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, often were a mix of, you know, uh, metallic fabrication with, uh, with wood. So it, it probably seemed like a, con- a continuation of the ship uh, outfitting business to them. Um, but within decades, they're one of the major producers of rail cars in Italy. Um, but there's another revolution that has come, and that is, of course, uh, aviation. Um, and uh, aviation really explodes a little bit belatedly in Italy compared to, say, France or the United States, but not that, not, not, not that much later. So by the 1920s, uh, mid-1920s, Piaggio is not only making rail cars and trams and still outfitting ships, but it's also... Um, Italy's number two producer of aircraft. Uh, it produced uh, everything from small fighter planes to passenger aircraft to bombers. Um, and uh, it was uh, it relied largely upon um, acquisitions on the part of the Italian state during the interwar period. Now, of course, Italy was on the losing side of World War II and the Italian industrial base was devastated by um, aerial bombardments, uh, largely American bombardments. And then those bombardments included the main Piaggio aircraft factories in uh, Pontedera in uh, Tuscany. Um, so out of the uh, ashes of World War II, out of the rubble of World War II, the leadership of the company um, had started to speculate about what were the mobility challenges of that post-war period. And it was clear that aircraft were not going to be the product that would save the Piaggio group in the post-war period. Uh, people were rebuilding. They needed daily transportation. They didn't need aircraft. And the state was in no position to be buying Italian aircraft in the immediate post-war period. So a whole bunch of aircraft engineers who, whose dream was to make helicopters, the most famous one is, uh, his name is Corradino Nascanio, found themselves uh, shifted over from the aircraft uh, dossier to creating a new kind of vehicle. Um, and that new kind of vehicle at the time had different names, but scooter is one of the words that was used for it. It was going to be cheap. It was going to be light. It was going to be simple to manufacture, but it had to somehow solve the mobility problems of post-war Italy with big pockmarked streets and narrow medieval city centers and all the mobility challenges that come with that terrain. And so the, the Vespa scooter is the product of that, um, that kind of divergence of a group of aircraft engineers away from uh, designing what they thought was the aircraft uh, type of the future, which were going to be helicopters, um, towards uh, land vehicles, light, small land vehicles. And most of all, what these guys felt, and this is true of the main inventor, Corradino Lascano, is they didn't like motorcycles. They thought motorcycles were loud, they were dirty, and the crossbar on them made them impossible for people to ride who uh, weren't real devoted you know, the ergonomics were, were, were not conducive to a wide audience. And so uh, if you look at the Vespa today, and of course it's changed in some ways, but in many ways, the original design has remained extraordinarily consistent. 1946, the first Vespa, the Vespa of today, shares many of the same, exact same attributes. It has a, uh, a fairing around it. The engine is covered. Uh, it has one-sided suspension, just like aircraft landing gear. 
The crossbar is out of there so that women in skirts can drive a Vespa just as well as as somebody clad in uh, motorcycle leathers. Um, it it protects the passenger from dirt, from the the uh, environment, from uh, rain. Uh, extremely simple, light. And it has a double kickstand, which means you, it balances itself. You can use it like your living room chair if you park it on a piazza. So it's all that, the kind of mix of choices that they made that, that transformed the motorcycle, which was an object that, of course, had a following, but it was a following that almost, by definition, limited the user audience, the, 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 the true passionate consumer market. And instead created a vehicle that could really be the ev- everyday light mobility vehicle that would reshape the culture of uh, post-World War II Italian society. And of course, they got it so right that that solution worked all over the world. And Vespa is the iconic scooter throughout the world today. What a remarkably prescient um, and, and completely connected, you know, um, case study to where we're, where we are today with Piaggio Fast Forward and the in the transportation crisis. So necessity being the mother of invention and the Italian culture being a design-centric culture, very human-centric design culture, coming up with something that, again, you know, 80 years later uh, is as robust and as, as well-known today as it was back then and as, and as relevant, maybe has come full circle to be even more relevant than it may have been in the, uh, you know, the big gas guzzler Detroit supercar era. Um, so fascinating. And then beyond that, just a year later, this understanding of how to extend the Vespa as a personal mobility solution into something that has much more functional capability to get work done. So can you describe a little bit about the Ape and maybe a little bit about the translation of Vespa and Ape and, and their, uh, their insect equivalents? Because I think it's it just really brings it home. Sure. Um, so the, the, the name Vespa um, uh, was chosen by uh, Renato Piaggio, who was the, um, the head of the group at the time of the Vespa's creation in 1946. Um, he took one look at it and uh, saw that its kind of streamlined tail section uh, suggested the tail of a wasp. Um, and then when he heard the motor with its two-stroke buzz, the original motors were four, little 40cc uh, two-stroke engines, um, he said, it's a wasp. <laughs> um, and once you have a wasp, uh, of course, when you add to the family, your immediate um, instinct is to think in terms of different uh, members of the insect uh, family. And that idea of extending the Vespa and and expanding upon it, building a whole family of vehicles, was really uh, present from the start. They had started experimenting with um, using the front end of Vespa scooters and putting a flatbed um, tail section with two wheels in the back. And that very quickly became the so-called ape, which is a word that means bee. And the ape went into production only two years after the beginning of production of the Vespa by the early 1950s, the Ape was um, really the utility vehicle of its era in the Mediterranean and Italy in particular. It was inexpensive like a Vespa, but it could haul freight. You could put any kind of back section on it, a covered van. You could 
put a cafe on the back. You could put a bunch of seats and use it as a popular taxi, just as we find throughout Southeast Asia. Today, the tuk-tuk is an ape, essentially. It's a three-wheeler. Three-wheelers are very nimble. They can handle rough terrain. They don't only operate on smooth asphalt pavement. Cobblestones are fine. Dirt is fine. Um, They work relatively well as an off-road vehicle. That kind of flexibility combined with low cost and with the the kind of mutability, the multiplicity of the vehicle made it an instant hit, not just in Southern Europe, but uh, but throughout the world. And of course, we, we do see the legacy of that, particularly in, in Southeast Asia and India, where the Ape, now the even the electric Ape, which just arrived this year, is is really one of the defining vehicles of, of city life um, uh, today. Right. And, you know, Jeff Bezos was just famously uh, photographed in front of a fleet of Apes in his uh, tie-dye narrow jacket just yesterday, making a proclamation that he would be investing in 100,000 of these electrified vehicles as part of his supply chain and last mile delivery. So this is fascinating. So here we are. We're going to now fast forward from 1946, 1947, the remarkably insightful approach to designing vehicles that were perfectly suited to the time and place. And now we're facing a transportation crisis around the world, a congestion crisis, a sustainability crisis, and you get a phone call. You're happily running the metal lab and teaching. And after two years of this rather just, you know, random discussion with a couple of uh, Italian gentlemen, you are now brought back to Italy for what you thought was a double espresso and uh, a biscotti. And instead, their jo- it's a job interview. So when we come back, we're going to talk about how that job interview turned from what might have been a think tank to something far more profound than that, which is an innovation lab based in Boston to help define the future of intelligent personal mobility. So we'll be right back. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. So we are back with Professor Jeffrey Schnapp, and now we're going to jump in to the deep end of the future of mobility pool. So it's been an incredibly fascinating historical ride with Professor Schnapp from, you know, the, uh, the beginning of uh, the formation of the Piaggio Group in the 1860s um, and its unique contribution to mobility, especially in the post-World War II era. But now we are sitting in another time and place where personal mobility becomes more important than ever. I was at a McKinsey event. I'm a McKinsey alum. And once a year, the managing director of the McKinsey office has a an event. Last year was about transportation. And the incredibly talented woman that heads the uh, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation shared a, a staggeringly depressing statistic. That is that the vast majority of people in the state of Massachusetts will actually use their automobiles to uh, take a trip of less than a half a mile. My God, <laughs> that is insane. So we have uh, we have met the enemy and it is us. <laughs> And it's time to maybe uh, change that. So let's go back to Milano and the job interview that becomes much more than just, uh, you know, hey, let's, let's think about the future. Let's actually make the future happen. 
How did that all turn out, Jack? Well, so um, the Piaggio Group was taken over in uh, 2006 by uh, Roberto Colanino, who is a, 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 re- a, a very significant figure on the Italian economic scene. He had led um, Telecom Italia, the first private phone company in Italy, um, after the breakup of the national monopoly. Um, he's not somebody who comes from the transportation world specifically, but he had an interest in these great brands that Italy had a kind of genius for creating, but then also had a, a, an unfortunate genius for taking to the brink of the, <laughs> the abyss. Um, these were typically... But they ate well, though. <laughs> they always ate well. They dressed well, too. Exactly. Um, but the, uh, you know, the Piaggio was a worldwide brand. I mean, Vespa scooters were everywhere. Um, but it was really an Italian-based company. The production facilities were concentrated in Italy, and it really suffered from the competition that was in- increasingly uh, coming from Asia in particular, and the Asian market being, of course, the world's m- most dynamic market for light mobility and scooters in particular. Um, so the Colonino came in with his son, Michele, and they immediately set about um, turning the company into a truly global concern with production facilities in Asia as well as in Europe, making a number of important acquisitions. Aprilia was one of them, a great performance motorcycle company with an incredible pedigree, but also in economic difficulties because of its small relative smallness. And they made a number of other additional acquisitions. But in the course of really thinking about the future of light mobility, what they under they realized is, that they really needed another chapter to this 130 plus, 135, 136-year history um, because of the transformations that are happening in the mobility space. It's, we're really living through one of the great tectonic shifts that's comparable, I think, to the shifts that happened at the turn of the, of the 20th century. And um, it was in that context that they started thinking about the, the need for some kind of structure that would allow them to think outside of the box and so that interview, um, which uh, was meant just to be a, co- a double espresso, as you said, uh, um, in Milan, was really to set up a think tank initially. That was their idea. And they wanted to look for somebody with a very broad perspective on innovation and technology, with deep roots, nonetheless, in Italian culture, um, and but somebody who is both on the inside and the outside. And I think that's the context in which I emerged as a as a, a, an appropriate figure. And so um, they propo- after the, by the end of that job interview, they proposed to me to set up a think tank uh, uh, based in the U.S. They wanted uh, a rich mix of people from a generational standpoint, from a standpoint, from a standpoint of areas of expertise. And over the, the next uh, month and a half, two months, I put together such a group uh, and the think tank met for the first time at the Laguna Seca Raceway in Monterey, California during World Superbike Weekend, a racetrack I knew well, rather intimately. Uh, and um, we had a fantastic uh, series of brainstorming days with the top engineering and leadership of the Piaggio Group gathered together. Uh, at the end of those three days, uh, the Colaninos pulled me aside and said, this has been great. But, you know, think tanks are a waste of time. You know, you can, you know, there's all these great ideas. We're not a car company. We don't want to just produce show cars. We want to really make stuff. So we think we need to start a new company. Um, and I, 
feared for a moment that maybe I had done my job too well and that was the end of our friendship, uh, having come away from the weekend thinking everything had gone wonderfully well. Well, and they made it very clear right away that, no, on the contrary, they wanted me to lead the company and they had handpicked the one other person they were really excited about continuing to be part of this venture. And that was the very first person that I had called in setting up the think tank, my co-founder, Greg Lynn, who's a prominent architect based in Los Angeles, but somebody with a very, very broad um, imagination and knowledge base that extends from architecture to mobile architecture. He's built his own racing sailboats. His, Greg is just really has an extraordinary mind, but, but above all, somebody who really deeply knows um, cities and the way cities are being reshaped and reimagined in the information and network era. Um, so basically the outcome of this, uh, this first phase was to focus on the two of us as co-founders. And we spent the next three or four months trying to work out the terms for that. And it was decided that the company would be based in Boston, you know, one of the great world's great robotics centers close to Harvard and MIT and Northeastern NBU, um, that, uh, I would be the CEO for the initial period. And Greg was the chief design officer, chief creative officer actually was the title we chose for that, that first period of time. And we started off with five people. We didn't hire any engineers initially. We hired designers and architects, people who know about cities and who were ready to really, you know, go deep into research on emerging, shifting patterns of mobility, bottom-up kind of people hacking, everything from hacking scooters and reimagining them to, you know, basically motorizing skateboards and um, really trying to look at what light light mobility was or what kinds of forms were being experimented with and emerging. Um, And at the very same time, we started developing some concepts, uh, concepts that were rooted in our vision of what's going to be the fabric, what urban fabrics will look like in the 21st century, how smart devices and networks and sensors are going to reshape the urban environment. And early in that process, it became clear to us that paradoxically, the future of mobility might be the most ancient form of mobility, namely walking, that walking was the one activity that not only was becoming increasingly central to ideas about value ideas about the kinds of neighborhoods we want to be in, ideas about quality of life, but also that walking-based areas, pedestrian-only zones, were, it had been emerging for 30, 40 years and were increasingly becoming closed off to you know, those protagonists of the 20th century model of development, which were the automobile and the truck. And so our core concept right from the beginning, um, I think, really drifted towards the idea of how do we support walking? How do we use uh, the emergent technologies of today to, uh, to make walking a, mo- a viable mobility choice, not the mobility choice that solves every problem, but the one that's at the bottom of the pyramid that solves the most basic and, and fundamental mobility needs that humans have. That's great. And then to augment their ability to walk by providing them with, you know, support, if you will. I- exactly. Yes. Exactly. Because as I think you hinted at before in, in the question, um, those half-mile trips, those one-mile trips in automobiles, what is it that motivates them? Is it human laziness? Well, sometimes it is. But in, in the great majority of cases, it's the fact that when we move around the world as bipeds, as humans, 
we carry stuff with us and we carry lots of stuff with us because we go out into the world to do things, whether it's to work, to play, to interact, to shop. Uh, and uh, so carrying stuff is a, a, a more than trivial obstacle. And a backpack is, of course, a great tool, but not everybody can carry a backpack. And if you had the choice between walking without a backpack and with a backpack, you would walk without one. Uh, and sometimes you want to have your hands free to hold hands, to hold the hand of your kid, to walk with your dog. Um, so the question we put to ourselves, well, what would be what, a new vehicle type that would support and reinforce pedestrian mobility choices? And, and that's really where Jita, which is the first product of Piaggio Fest, where it just went on the U.S. market in late November of the past year. Um, and we see it as a first step towards a whole family of similar vehicles. Um, we felt it's that piece of infrastructure that's missing that could be the catalyst, not only for reinforcing the, kind, the design of cities, the, the kinds of cities that we want to live in, but also that might lead to uh, a whole new concept of human ro ro robot interaction that would be human-centered rather than focusing on replacing human mobility. Our focus was on augmenting human mobility. I love it. So you know, I know that when I am in cities where I do get to walk, whether it's on the Embarcadero in San Francisco or, you know, in any one of a number of different, um, you know, pedestrian districts, just there's something very life-affirming and very satisfying um, and very freeing about it, right? So we, we're here in Boston, and, you know, Boston had the, uh, the first U.S. public transport system that was created in 1897, right? 3,500 miles of track, the envy of the civilized world. But we're sitting here today, 120 years later. Um, you know, my, my twin sister went to BU here, so I remember the T in the mid-'80s it worked well, right? It, it actually was pretty functional, but it is suffering from decay. And for those who haven't spent time in Boston lately, we now lose more time to commuting in traffic than any city in the country. Even on a Sunday afternoon, it feels like we're in LA. And so there's this feeling of being imprisoned, right? Just what would be a 15 or 20 minute ride now turns into an hour. So it, it just makes so much sense to me because it is a small enough and walkable enough city. But as you said, right, we go out into the world and we carry stuff. And I remember, Jeffrey, as you and I were prepping, I, I reminded you of the wonderful George Carlin bit called Stuff, um, where he was moving his stuff from his home to an island to Hawaii, then to another island to visit friends. And, and so we are burdened by stuff. And I know that I tend to typically only take a vehicle when I'm going to go grocery shopping, of course, now uh, Amazon Prime has even changed that, right? So that's no longer an issue. But, you know, you look at harried moms or, or parents that are trying to get two or three kids out of the house, and it's, it's, it's a variable caravan of, uh, of a supply chain that they have to move with them to, you know, get these kids out of the house. So, so as I look at your website, right, lots of use cases, not only grocery shopping, but parents, people going to work out. Can you talk a little bit about how you – you know, the design process you went through to kind of arrive at this wonderful conclusion and, and what, when that light went off for you guys. Yeah. So, um, when we, we started out, we were, we were really thinking, um, in a, in a kind of panoramic way about the whole pedestrian space. And, and certainly 
the concern that's uh, shared with many other innovators in this space with last mile delivery, for example, um, the whole question of how we navigate at this kind of scale of the neighborhood was one that we were thinking about. Um, but in that context, uh, first of all, we became very skeptical about the ability of um, autonomous, level five autonomous vehicles to navigate the complexities of human-rich spaces as our sidewalks and civic spaces, the kind of dense, high-density neighborhoods that uh, we associate with, you know, the great cities of the world. But second of all, we wondered about the social proposition behind replacing human mobility rather than supporting human mobility. Um, uh, There's a reason why we like to congregate in those spaces. And that, that re- those reasons have to do with the, the richness of the, the multi-sensory experiences that they offer us, the kind of sense of quality of life, of quality of connection to those spaces. And that led us away from that kind of autonomous last mile delivery, like let's solve that problem, towards instead a, a model which we, we deeply believe in. It's anchored in the concept of human-centered design which is let's not replace um, human mobility with autonomy for robots. Let's create autonomy for humans. What, what does autonomy for humans means? It's create, leverage all the power of those technologies that are associated with autonomous vehicles, but use them in the service of augmenting and extending human mobility to let, allow people to walk more, better, faster, and um, in many cases, to allow them to walk freely, because, you know, of course, walking is a, this very profound expression of our independence and freedom. But many people struggle to walk in urban spaces with the aging population, the fastest growing se- segment of the population of almost in every mature economy, the disabled, many categories of people who just can't carry weight. And our vehicles are more than just mobile carriers. That's how we describe them, Um, where your body is the interface. It's the trigger. It tells the vehicle how to follow you and how to move through these very complex spaces. Um, Not somebody who's in a remote location tracking the camera feeds and trying to get the vehicle to navigate through a crowd of people. But um, but the, the other thing about uh, a kind of robotic carrier is it carries connectivity and it carries power wherever it goes. There's a USB plug. You can connect smart devices to it. And we're in the process of developing what we call drop-ins, where the cargo bin can be used with all kinds of specialized equipment, everything from a refrigeration unit, you take your beers to the park with your friends, to, um, you know, it could be a high-resolution camera that you use to live broadcast events without a camera crew, you know? So the, the, the focus was really from the start to extend and expand human agency, to help people to re-engage with uh, the spaces, the communities, the worlds that they inhabit in the most intimate way, which are their neighborhoods and um, the, the kind of core landscapes of the environments that they, they live in. Um, and one of the core design features of Jita uh, and the Piaggio Fast Forward family of robots is that there's no joysticking. You're not looking at a screen. Um, you pair up with a vehicle at the beginning of each trip. It confirms that you're an authorized user through a Bluetooth channel, and that's it. There's no, uh, we're not depending upon GPS. You can navigate indoors and outdoors indifferently. 
It's a vehicle that's so simple to operate that a five-year-old can operate it and an 85-year-old can operate it. And our design philosophy was simplify, make it as simple as possible. We'll add on all kinds of cool stuff later. Higher degrees of autonomy. Maybe you want the vehicle to go park itself, you know, 50 feet away from you. Um, Maybe you wanted to map the environments you travel in. But what we wanted to start out with was a much simpler proposition, uh, the one I was describing. I love it. So, so many reactions. One is triple bottom line. Not only does it address personal mobility, but it gets people walking. And with our health crises and our obesity crises, that can only help. It addresses our congestion crises in the cities as well. So a lot of you know, positive consequences outside of the original design intent that all sort of, you know, layer on top of one another in a very symbiotic way. Um, I love the idea of the drop-ins. In many ways, it reminds me of the APE and the extension of the Vespa and making it, you know, more of a workhorse. Um, And, you know, whether it's the refrigeration uh, for going to uh, listen to uh, the pops on the 4th of July or whatever, or the, the, you know, the head of the Charles, love it. Or, you know, not having to, you know, schlep the camera crew around, which is massively uh, difficult. So I guess I'm also assuming, as you said, you just kind of pair up. So you no longer have to reconcile, uh, like you described before, your natural speed, my natural speed with that of an Italian walking at two very different paces. The the Jita knows that this is Professor Jeffrey Schnapp. He walks fast, so I better keep pace with him. Um, and there's no real need to do anything other than just let that happen. Indeed. And um, all of the kind of intelligence of the vehicle is focused on the complexities of how we actually move around the world. So yeah. maybe you're a fast walker. Maybe you're a slow walker. Um, maybe you're operating in an environment where there's nobody else on the sidewalk. Um, maybe you're, on the contrary, in a crowded place where there are many obstacles and where Jita needs to understand the etiquette of the sidewalk. And that sounds like a simple proposition, but it is extraordinarily complex. So all of those forms of intelligence, we work into the uh, operating system in the nav of the, the vehicle so that it can interpret the complexity of that pedestrian etiquette and be a welcome presence in the sidewalk. Because again, sidewalks are civic spaces. And any vehicle that is going to operate with its own rules is violating a, a kind of sacred core principle, which is that these are human spaces. Yes. So it, for us, that, that was a crucial consideration. So it's autonomy for humans is our motto. And that means exactly what I just described. I love it. And we'll come back to the, the notorious e-scooter and and its impact on the civic space and the incredible controversy. But let's go back. So now you said that you started shipping the Jita in November. What what are some of the early learnings, maybe some of the assumptions that have been challenged that are causing you to refine your hypothesis about how this will work? Well, so it's still relatively early days. I mean, we've only had vehicles out there really in the field for about a, a, a month, a month and a half. Um, there's certainly some fine-tuning of the behaviors that I was describing before. Like, for, I'll give you one concrete example. The following distance is dynamic, so it responds to the speed at which somebody is walking. Um, if you slow down, Jita gets a little bit closer to you. If you speed up, Jita, uh, it, and the maximum speed, I should mention, is um, six miles, miles an hour. So that's a, you know, kind of like a, a jogging speed, I would say. 
Um, so the, the dynamic nature of the following is, is responsive. It's, yep. uh, responsive because you need a certain amount of braking distance. This is a self-balancing vehicle that uses the, the mass of the body to balance, not a gyroscope like a Segway, for example. Um, and, uh, some of those behaviors are, are, we know that we will, they will go through many iterations. We do over the air updates on those as we do fine tune tunes to the behaviors. There's other kinds of practical issues that have to do with the app that accompanies uh, Jita. You can operate Jita without an app, without a, f- a smartphone, but uh, the advanced functionalities come through the app. One of those smart functionalities is the social one. We don't think of these as individual vehicles. We think of them as vehicles that you'll share with your housemates, with your friends, with your workplace. And a lot of those features are ones that we're just rolling out even as we sell vehicles to early adopters who are excited about their potential. So it's, as I think is always the case with Internet of Things objects, it's really a work in progress. Yeah. And um, that progress never stops. Okay. Will I buy my Jita directly from you through an e-commerce transaction or will I find it in bicycle shops or how will I uh, be able to have my chance to lay my hands on the Jita and, and see it in action? So uh, we sell directly online, but at the as we are selling, we have what we call the experiential tour that's moving around the um, the United States, a couple of uh, sprinter vans with fleets of Jitas, and we bring them to farmers markets, we bring them to music events, and we let people just go out and walks and experience what it's like to move with the smartest vehicle you've ever gone on a walk with, um, probably right up there you know, side by side, maybe, you know, the, the rival, the true rival would be your pet dog. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and just to feel what it's like, cause it's, it isn't what you expect. It's really something, there's something magical about it and it's different. Uh, the different way to roll. I love it. I, I, I'm a big mu- three day music festival junkie. And you talk about wanting to bring stuff. Um, this is something that I could imagine would be an incredibly, um, you know, uh, just make my life so much easier going to a festival. So can you give us just a rough feel for the price? Yeah. So Jita um, sells for um, $3,250 on the U.S. market. We've limited ourselves for the moment to the U.S. market, even though there's a lot of interest uh, for the vehicles uh, worldwide. Um, we, we decided to focus on the U.S. market for a couple of reasons. One of them um, is that it's a tough market. Uh, it's a market where walking-centered solutions have not been you know, dominant, let's say, even though walkability has become the defining feature of uh, real estate development, uh, demand in terms of neighborhood design and so forth. So we, we felt like it was a really great test market for us. Um, a second reason is that this is a, you know, sophisticated Internet of Things product that requires good, solid technical support. And we wanted to make sure that we were able to provide that for our first customers. So, um, you know, the fact that we are a U.S.-based firm um, based here in Boston, uh, we felt that the strongest platform for us to build on would be to just focus on the U.S. market for the initial rollout of the vehicles and then gradually, in a strategic way, move beyond the U.S. to some international markets. That's great. And can you share a little bit more about your vision for the future of Piaggio Fast Forward and you know, what we might expect to see over the next three years. Yeah, so we we have in development some other vehicles, and we certainly would expect to have a second uh, vehicle on the market besides Jita 
um, I would say by the third end of the third quarter of uh, 2020, um, the family of vehicles that will result will be built around the same core vision of walking, a kind of walking, you know, supporting and promoting a walking based model of mobility in towns and cities. Um, the scales of the vehicles will be different. The capabilities will, will be different as well. Okay. Great. So uh, I just can't say enough about how exciting it is, right? The ancient wisdom um, is, thank goodness, coming back around into fashion. And walking is just the most natural thing that a human being can do. And so the ability to augment someone's ability to walk and carry out their daily activities, whether it be shopping or working out or, you know, whatever they may be doing, um, it just makes so much sense. And yet, you've taken such a unique position. You're the only company that I'm aware of that has arrived at this conclusion. And and what I love about this, Jeffrey, more than anything is one, the path that you took to get here, because you have such a unique set of perspectives that, that come together. But I'm also struck by how remarkably prescient and open-minded and thoughtful the team from Piaggio was to identify you, right? Because you would not be the obvious choice. You've never worked in the industry before. And yet, you know, maybe this is this is why you've arrived at such a unique outcome, because you weren't constrained by industry tradition, or this is the way we've always done things. And I think for, you know, for my listeners, right, this is, at the end of the day, this is the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things have to be wildly technologically focused to disrupt. They need to be thoughtful. They need to add value. They need to allow people to improve the quality of their professional or their personal lives. And that's exactly what we have here. So one of the things that, you know, I love the Alan Toffler quote, that to be literate in the 21st century is to learn how to forget many things. And I think we need to forget what has gotten us here, because what has gotten us here, quite frankly, has not necessarily led to a positive outcome. And we have a lot of people in Davos today all pledging allegiance to climate change. And let's hope for the first time that they're actually truly committed to this. And there seems to be some movement here after Greta Thunberg graced our shores in September at the UN General Assembly. And we're seeing announcements from people like Microsoft talking about being climate negative and BlackRock now talking about completely redefining its portfolio and, and, you know, holding its investments accountable. But we need to be doing this on a mass scale. And the thought that you can help enable mankind to walk more, to get healthier, to reduce congestion on the streets, um, is to me seems like such a, a natural way to begin to help solve this problem. So we're going to take one last break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about some other evolving forms of personal mobility, just to get your perspective. And then we'll wrap this up. Okay. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at I want in at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or this is cool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com. Thank you. 
All right. So we're back with Professor Jeffrey Schnapp, uh, who is the chief visionary officer and co-founder of Piaggio Fast Forward, amongst many other titles. Uh, I've tremendously enjoyed the chance to spend time with you this afternoon, Jeffrey, understanding your history, understanding the history of Piaggio, the company, the dynastic Italian company, the creator of the iconic Vespa scooter and the Ape. But of course, most importantly, the understanding of how Piaggio Fast Forward's Innovation Lab is redefining the future of personal mobility right here in Boston. Um, Now, of course, there are a lot of other organizations that are trying to address this same problem in a variety of different ways. Not surprisingly, one of them are the iconic e-scooter companies, Lime and Bird. And it's hard for me to imagine any two more controversial companies that I have seen coming out of the world of Silicon Valley in a long time, right? And there's as much polarization around whether these are a good or bad thing as there is between the the current political polarization between the Democratic and the Republican parties. Now, you know, during the ridiculously overvalued era of the unicorn, both of these companies were the two um, two of the, the highest valued companies and the quickest to, you know, unicorn status in history. Um, they're now cutting back. Um, their valuations have been dropping. But, you know, some people would argue that these are the worst thing that they've ever seen and obviously accidents, but other people would say that they're actually quite effective. I'd love to get your learned perspective on the scooter revolution and where you think we'll ultimately land with it. I mean, it's been a fascinating um current of, of contemporary debate to, to monitor, because if you think back 10, 20 years, if you had told somebody that micromobility was going to be where the action was in the future of mobility, of urban mobility, they would have looked at you like a mad person. And um, the just sudden emergence of e-scooters has been uh, fascinating. And um, I've ridden many different kinds of e-scooters. Um, I, I think they're a great vehicle in and of itself, um, but I think the way they've been deployed is really largely responsible for the uh, contentiousness around them as a solution. And I don't think like like any uh, uh, such vehicle, including the Jita robot, I don't think that any vehicle can in and, its, in, in and of itself solve all the issues, all the scales of mobility that need to be addressed. Um, so I see a place for e-scooters in a larger ecology, but it's a place where there are clear boundary lines. And I think in the absence of those boundary lines, we get the kinds of battles that are being fought over them. Um, And those battles are really conditioned by, you know, the fact that people ride them on sidewalks, that they get dumped all over the place, that there was never a regulatory framework, which the companies uh, negotiated before they entered different kind of urban markets. And the, the resulting chaos and conflict um, was, was designed into that uh, strategy, which I think was mistaken. And at Piaggio Fesver, we've adopted the opposite strategy. We've been very focused on working with state legislators and with local regulators to uh, define clearly what the expectations and boundaries are of a vehicle like the Jita robot. Um, and we think that's important. And... Um, uh, above and beyond the balance sheet. We think it's important because, uh, again, these are public spaces that are shared spaces and where th- the long-term health and viability of these solutions is contingent upon public support. Uh, 
And so to, to, to do kind of carpet bombing campaign where you just drop vehicles into a place and expect then everybody to fall into line, I think is a naive strategy ultimately. It's certainly a, it's a naive strategy over the long, middle to long term. And behind it is, is also an absence of a sustainable economic model. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think when you combine those two things, it's a question mark for me right now what the future looks like. I just came back from Vienna uh, last night and in, in Vienna – there's plenty of e-scooters that are neither birds nor limes that uh, the scale and presence of them is much lighter as a footprint. Um, I saw plenty of evidence of uh, clear regulations and an understanding on the part of the user population that they must stick to bike lanes and not operate either in the street or on sidewalks. So maybe there's a way to do it right, I guess is what I'm saying. I think there is a role in the universe of micro-mobility solutions for these kinds of vehicles, um, but they have to be deployed right. Yeah, and I know, you know, from everything I've seen, being in San Francisco when they were they were outlawed, they were pulled off the streets, they were allowed back on, a lot of it does come down to just individual user behavior. So even though they are told when they rent, you will not be on the sidewalk, you will not be in the street, um, unfortunately, you've got a lot of people that just want to go renegade. And unfortunately for the companies that are trying to, you know, grow businesses, um, they, they have not found it easy to figure out how to, how to get any kind of compliance. So it's, it's been fascinating to see um, the, again, just the, the meteoric rise and, and just a sudden fall in the excitement and the valuation of these companies. And I would agree following the Uber model was not the right approach. Uber has never really fully been able to, jettison itself from a lot of the public outcry by, you know, by trying to just, you know, beg forgiveness. They, I don't think they'll ever fully shake off that part of their, of their uh, brand. Now let's, let's go to one last, uh, you know, and this is obviously a very big type of concept where we're talking about the future of cities um, and livable, smaller scale, walkable cities, again, kind of, you know, a return to the past. Um, not surprisingly, Google Sidewalk Labs is one of the leading brands that is looking to try to redefine San Jose, redefine Toronto. Uh, a tremendous amount of publicity, both positive and increasingly negative recently. From what I understand, Sidewalk Labs has really scaled back its ambitions. I'd love to get your sense as to what's going on there and, and whether over time this may be viable as, as a part of a solution. Um, yeah, I'm, I've been following with great interest, um, not just Sidewalk Labs, but other projects, the, um, the Woven City project that uh, <clears throat> uh, Toyota um, co-developed, um, and, and a number of such projects. And I think, I think they're all important and interesting experiments, um, but it's not entirely surprising to me that in the realization of the actual transformation of them into concrete built propositions – that there's a strong tendency to back off the visionary and to move in a kind of more limited, more pragmatic direction. And I, I worry that, uh, these, it, that each of them has a, a, a kind of core, commits a core sin, <laughs> has a core flaw. Um, and that flaw is either to be technocentric, in other words, to assume that if the technologies answer some of the key urban design questions, or to take too much for granted the continuation of certain models of development and organization of space that we've inherited from the past century. 
Um, and without going into the weeds, I, I, what I what I mean to say in both in 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 terms of both of those potential limitations is that there's deep understanding and wisdom about the design of cities and the built environment that comes not from the technology domain, but from the domain of architecture and sp- and planning. Yeah, urban and, planning. And yes. urban planning. Yeah. And the wisdom of people who have spent their lives, their careers, building understanding of just, you know, all of the kind of complex layering of factors that make up those spaces is not to be sneezed at. Um, and so um, I think there's real value in these exercises. I, I believe in them. But I, in in the end, I, I, I tend to defer more to those disciplines that have deep roots in city design than I do immediately to a kind of engineering or tech innovation-driven proposition, even though I'm engaged in one. So, um, again, I, I believe in the value of these kinds of exercises, but I think ultimately the question of the kinds of cities we live in and the kinds of cities we want to live in is a question of values. Uh, first and foremost. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense, Jeffrey. I, I know the, the joy of being in Paris or the joy of being in Munich, and it's it's almost indescribable, right? You you feel just such a sense of connectedness, right? There's something so life-affirming about being in these remarkably designed cities that, um, yeah, it, it, it feels like we've lost maybe some touch with with the the art and science of planning, and we've you know we've we've just gone too far with the direction of technology. I mean, we're we're certainly now at a point where we've passed peak Google, we've passed peak Facebook. They're no longer the heroic uh, companies that we may have mistakenly ascribed to them, um, and maybe greater you know greater heads will prevail once again. But I think it's it's great to have an opportunity to talk with you, both a classicist and a digital pioneer and innovator, um, wearing both of those hats comfortably, simultaneously, um, and, you know, and creating a wonderful amount of balance between the classics and ancient wisdom with robotics and IoT in the future in a, in a very harmonious way. So I can't thank you enough uh, for the time uh, that you spent with us today, and uh, I really enjoyed the chance to get to spend uh, over an hour with you. This is by far the longest podcast that uh, I've recorded, but uh, uh, I can't wait to share this with our audience. Thank you. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks.